Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the dangers of not understanding the history of our history. I'm probably going to entitle this inappropriate conversation something like Some History There. Because I think it's important for us to understand that history, even an accurately told and remembered history, isn't always a completely good thing. And one of the best ways I can think of describing it is with that phrase, that piece of vernacular, Some History There. It would be like uh, somebody saying, well, you know what, I don't think that I'm going to go to my class reunion because I've already seen the uh, RSVPs and I know that there's going to be some folks there that I've been in some conflict with, both in the distant past and high school and even since. There's just some history there. I saw an interview today, and I don't know the context, but Demi Moore, the actress, who was married and later divorced from Bruce Willis, was talking about some show she's on. And the interviewer asked whether or not there were other uh, stars from the past who would be on the program. And somebody jokingly mentioned Bruce Willis. And the answer was, well, probably not, because, you know, there's some history there. And perhaps one of the ways that we can think about the United States... Conflicts we've had over race just this year, here in 2017, and issues of uh, related to what some folks call the cultural heritage of the Civil War, uh, what other people refer to as uh, as a racist legacy. There's some history there too, and while I recognize the importance of accurately relating history and understanding it and having it in a proper context. I also know that that doesn't necessarily mean that any use of history within that context is going to be a good thing. There's a couple of things I don't think I'm going to bring up in discussing this issue. One of them is the accuracy of our history books. It may be enough to say that that's a problem, and it's a problem that we're not dealing with. Because anytime you read a history of the Civil War, especially one intended for middle school or high school or even collegiate use, that sort of whitewashes, use of that term intentional, the role that um, slavery and racism and other factors played. Um, even if you look at the Civil War from simply an economic context, you can't really deny the impact of the the role of free labor or the pursuit of free labor in that and what that means in the context of the Civil War itself. So I think that we don't do a very good job of guarding, protecting our history. And for the anti-intellectualism that seems to be growing in our society here in the last couple of years, it's not helpful that there are a lot of people who would view anybody who actually has done the primary research and invested himself or herself in knowing that history could be discounted as just somebody from an ivory tower who's, you know, uh, using their liberal education to destroy America's legacy or things along those lines. And unless anybody may think that I'm overstating it, uh, one of the reasons that I decided to steer this particular topic, uh, truly originally built around a different drummer, but to steer it in the direction of the legacy of the Civil War in a, in a negative way, was something that I saw online from a Facebook group called Southern Heritage News and Views. And I'm only going to share it in the context of disagreeing with it. And 
We'll use it as a springboard to discuss the issue of whether or not we have the appropriate amount of respect for our history. This meme says this. Blaming 100-plus-year-old statues of men who died 150 years ago for our problems today only highlights the ignorance among us. It's a fascinating thing to be lectured about ignorance from people who don't seem to think facts matter or are unwilling to do the primary research or who would probably denigrate those who actually do uh, complete the task of doing that primary research. Because in the for the most part, we're not talking about statues that are 100 years old, um, and we're not necessarily talking about statues that were built to commemorate the memory of people who died 150 years ago. It's much more complex than that. But for me, the topic is essentially this. The danger of not understanding the history of our history. Would the insinuation here be different if the people were blaming statues erected far less than 100 years ago? Many, and by that I mean 100, erected during my lifetime. They weren't put there to commemorate the actions of people who died 150 years ago. They were put there to intimidate the descendants of the same people who were the victims of those historical figures. People who did fight a war of rebellion and fought a war of rebellion to keep those same people enslaved and often brutalized. Facts matter and ignorance of the facts is no excuse. This particular inappropriate conversation is going to have what for me it might be an unusual trend of show notes. I'm going to share what I feel like is a handful of links because I don't think I'm going to be able to do any of the articles that I want to refer to justice. And it's more than just one or two. So what I'll do is I'll link them up because the other thing is that pictures kind of speak louder than the words here. And the first one I want to refer to is an article that I've seen, an image I've seen many places, but I saw it in an article on CNN.com. The publication date was August 16th, 2017, and the article was called U.S. Confederate Monuments Backlash Chart. So there are certain moments in U.S. history when Confederate monuments go up. And what we find is that the number of Confederate monuments erected during my lifetime is about the same, maybe even more, than the number of Confederate monuments that were actually erected after the war. Say in this period of time that this meme refers to, uh, maybe 120 or more years ago. And then there was a huge spike in what we would call the Jim Crow era, the rise of the KKK, the period in time right around when when D.W. Griffith was making his film version of The Klansman uh, called Birth of a Nation. the By far the greatest number of Confederate monuments went up then. We'll talk a little bit about why here later on in the show. And then there was a a slight dip during World War II and another blip right back up again for the period of time that might be described as the civil rights era. The early part of the 60s all the way through to the mid-60s, another spike. In other words, when black people begin to engage openly in the political process, when they are elected to positions in um, state government and in city government, you see this spike in Confederate monuments suddenly popping up. And then a little bit later on, when um, voting rights acts were being passed, and, and actually the Congress spent some time trying to guarantee that the things that should have already been guaranteed in what we call the Reconstruction Constitutional Amendments, during that period of time, you see this other spike. In other words, in the American South, for one, but not just there, you see an increase in the rise of these monuments, coinciding with an effort to silence the role of black people in society. That is the truth. 
and the chart again tells the story pretty well. Here's what the article says on CNN.com, written by Saeed Ahmed. To hear their defenders say it, Confederate memorials aren't symbols of hate, they are meant to honor a heritage. But as this chart above from the Southern Poverty Law Center shows, whenever the country appeared to have made some racial progress, cities and states, mostly in the South, responded by erecting such monuments. There are two distinct spikes, one around the turn of the 20th century and one during the height of the Civil Rights Movement. So that pretty much puts to rest this idea that what we have is, you know, 120, 150-year-old statues commemorating events that happened 150 years ago, maybe even slightly more than 150 years ago now. No, that isn't necessarily the case. So what do we, what do, we do about this? Well, I think the Christian thing to do, to cite Jesus of Nazareth, to, to talk about the Sermon on the Mount, and even Matthew 25, where the instructions are, that what we do for the least of these, we did for him, that Jesus wants us to put ourselves in the position of other people, to be empathetic to their situation. Benjamin L. Corey, uh, former host of The God Show, or at least I'd like to think that podcast isn't done, but it seems to be dormant, put a meme up that says this. If someone kidnapped your child and sold them, where would you want us to put the statue of that person? I'd like to take that even further, as a matter of fact. I would argue that the single most negative event on a national scale that has happened in, say, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, was the bombing of the federal building by Timothy McVeigh. Beyond any doubt, it's a piece of relatively recent American history that we must not forget. And at the very least, we shouldn't let our guard down. Law enforcement prevented someone in the month of August from repeating that same crime. So... We can't act like this is dead and gone, like it's just history, like it's not worth keeping in our in the front of our minds and remembering. Whether we call that a part of our heritage seems a bit of a stretch, but it's nevertheless, well, like it or not, it's part of our heritage. I have many relatives who live or have lived in Oklahoma. Among my in-laws are those who lost family in that domestic terrorist attack. My boss at the time was probably lucky that his wife wasn't in the building on that day. It may not be an overstatement to say that the fate of those in the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April 19, 1995, well, it's woven into the DNA of those who have felt the shockwaves of that explosion, either literally or figuratively. So, when is the McVeigh statue going up in downtown Oklahoma City? Where are we putting it? How close to the bomb site should it go, for example? And what has taken so long? Why the delay isn't a piece, an important piece of American heritage about to disappear on us? Because the further the time goes by, the less we are going to be easily doing a rendering that accurately recreates the face of this person who's such an important part of the heritage of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Or could it be that we know how hurtful it would be to the fine citizens of Oklahoma for a McVeigh statue to be erected in this manner? What does it say about any of us who know that it is wrong but cannot see how wrong the facile heritage arguments are that are coming not just from you know people like this website that I shared, this, this meme from Southern Heritage News and Views, but even from the President of the United States himself who may wittingly or unwittingly be supporting that same worldview? 
one of these ideas is the notion that, well, if we're blaming a 100-plus-year-old statue on men who died 150 years ago for our problems today, well, that only highlights the ignorance among us. I don't know. The ignorance among us may be better represented by the notion that if someone kidnapped your child and sold them, where would you want us to put the statue of that person? And then we get into other questions, not just about the nature of these statues, but the quality of them. Generally speaking, all the ones that have been erected in, say, maybe the middle part of the 20th century were shoddily done, hastily put together, inexpensively made might be the best way to word it, because the goal there was quantity over quality, having a lot of them to remind people to stay in their place. What sense does it make for there to be a statue commemorating events in the U.S. Civil War in a place like Montana that wasn't even part of the narrative back then? Oh, don't get me wrong. It's a haven for white nationalism and separatist groups and uh, paramilitary organizations and people who have declared the United States government to be their enemy, particularly during the Obama administration. But I don't know that it makes much sense for the states like Massachusetts to be remembering the Confederacy. And yet that's where we are. If I was going to look somewhere to point and suggest that maybe there's an element of ignorance here, that might be where I would go. Because one of two things are true. Either we've forgotten our history, or we're being so dishonest about it that it's almost like a couple who've had an acrimonious divorce happening to find themselves in the same social event years later, where friends have decided to spend the rest of the evening keeping them as separate as possible, because after all... Well, there's some history there. So I set about to make a suggestion. And I feel pretty comfortable with it. And I don't know that I've ever shared it in too much of a direct way before. I was willing to ignore, frankly, prior to the events in Charlottesville, Virginia, this past August. But it became clear to me that if people were willing to murder other human beings over a statue of Robert E. Lee that we might want to come to a better understanding of where we are with this issue. Which history do we want to remember? And which history would we be uh, yeah, better served forgetting, for want of a better word? And what I mean by that, and this is going to be one of these classic inappropriate conversations, situations where I'm going to disappoint everybody. Because I'm going to come along and make a suggestion that isn't going to be self-righteously satisfying to either side if there are just two sides of this issue. To me, it's more complicated than that. And before I go into my my thought process, let me just kind of restate something that I've shared before on Inappropriate Conversations from the perspective of debate technique. I prefer, where possible, to be able to grant someone whose point of view is different from mine or opposed to mine as much ideological ground as I possibly can. Now, I cannot grant that you know, quote-unquote, most of these statues were erected more than a 100 years ago, because that's actually not true. Depends on how you define words like most, but it's clear that that is a, uh, that's a piece of misinformation. But I could grant that perhaps there are statues that were erected in certain um, historical markers at certain geographical locations, sometime within maybe the first decade or two after the end of the U.S. Civil War, that maybe those should stick around. And if we did have our standard as strict as as one or two decades after the war, we're not even talking about 50 statues. This assumes that all of these statues are still maintained in some sort of, you know, 
that they're still there, I guess, for want of a better word. And even if we were very generous and said, well, let's stretch this all the way out to where maybe we're looking at 120 years ago, we're looking at maybe the 1890s, give or take, you're still talking about 100 at the most. And all of them, at least I'm assuming, would be based in places either in the American South or on the borders where the battles were actually fought. So I think you could limit greatly the number of statues. And my intent would be to say, hey, for those people who actually really are serious, who are students of history, who view this as a regrettable part of our nation's past, and like I wouldn't want to remove any historical markers from the Trail of Tears, I wouldn't want to tell the Cherokee tribe in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, that they're no longer uh, allowed to do any um, presentations related to the Trail of Tears. No, I'm not one for whitewashing or erasing or expunging any of our history. But let's be honest about what that history is. I do think that we as a nation should be absolutely embarrassed by the amount of leash we've given to the Ku Klux Klan. I think that the Jim Crow laws are not just an historical embarrassment for which we ought to be extremely apologetic. And even worse, because there are many people who seem to want those Jim Crow laws back. The mentality of some of the folks on Duck Dynasty, for example, seem to hearken back to longingly to the days of Jim Crow laws, or what I describe now as Jesus Crow laws, which is kind of the same mentality except trying to make the target not intimidating uh, black people, but intimidating gay and lesbian people with laws about you know who's allowed to eat in which, which bakeries and who's allowed to hire a photographer, all that sort of stuff. Uh, we not only have not given up nationally, our Jim Crow legacy, we're beginning, or at least we're at risk of beginning, a new Jesus Crow legacy. So now what I'd like to do is grant people who really feel a strong, emotional, genuine connection to United States history. And it's ironic that it's United States history we need to be talking about here, not some you know fringe separatist terrorist activity that happened in the middle of the 1800s. I'm willing to grant that to them if they're willing to grant me a few things in return. And what typically happens in a debate approach like this is that by granting someone as much as I possibly can and asking them to live within the accountability that that represents, most of the time they absolutely can't. Because what they're trying to protect isn't what they say they're trying to protect. And the devil is in the details. So here's the the compromise that I would make over people who are obsessed with Confederate heritage statues. First, there is a period of time when we probably could argue that the statues reflect genuine war memorials rather than acts of intimidation. I'm putting that year generously at 1895. That is 30 years after the war, and it more than reflects the time of the Reconstruction phase, plus an even similar larger interval afterwards. So if you're strict historically about the length of the period called Reconstruction, and you double that, you get to roughly around 1895. Second, I think we need to respect the wishes of men who fought in the Confederacy, but did not want statues like these erected and remove any references to them. So any statues of those men. I think that if we want to honor the legacy of somebody like, say, Robert E. Lee, then we need to do what Robert E. Lee said he wanted done in remembrance of him. We'll get there in a minute. Third, I think that there is still something to be said for respecting the wishes of descendants and others who have said that they don't necessarily want their ancestors 
to be remembered in these particular kind of statues. So if, in other words, the descendants of Stonewall Jackson want the statues of their kin removed, then those statues ought to be removed. Now, I'm not saying we remove them with a bulldozer and a sledgehammer and a steamroller. We can remove them in lots of ways. So let's talk about how we might do that. Well, first, what will be left? After we remove all the statues made, say, around Plessy versus Ferguson on, that all those separate but equal ideas and the statues that were made at those times and since, well, those were not necessary. They are not historical. They were acts of intimidation, and they should be taken down. If they were put up in a shoddy, cheaply made, crappy way to mass produce them, then I think that they that maybe we should bulldoze those because I'm not sure how well those would sustain a process of removal, and I'm not sure whether the artistry and the craftsmanship behind them elevates to the level that belongs in any way in any sort of museum. But that's a quibble. We just simply need to let them go. If we remove all of those, and then we remove all the ones with Robert E. Lee in them or on them or uh, mentioned, because, well, we want to honor, we want to honor Robert E. Lee. Either you think Robert E. Lee was the leader of a traitorous movement, and no one in the United States should be honoring someone who tried to destroy the country. Or he was a great man, fought on the losing side of something, but was in many ways you know, worthy of being heard and worthy of having his words respected. And therefore, well, let's do just that. On this particular topic of heritage statues and other remembrances of the War of Rebellion, well, then let's listen to what he had to say and see how much of that we can actually accomplish. So let me go back. If we do all these things, how many statues would be left standing? Precious little. Maybe 30, 40, less than 100. And anyone who can't live with that doesn't understand the principles of compromise that I'm trying to display here and lacks the emotional maturity to even contribute to the conversation. It is okay for us to turn to people who don't seem to have the first clue about how relatively new in the history of our country these statues are compared to how relatively recent the civil rights legislations were. I mean, we're talking in my lifetime, we had to pass laws that said, hey, you know those uh, Reconstruction Amendments? We meant them. We should live up to those. We're going to do those things now. After 100 years have gone by, we're going to do those things now. If If the end of slavery was forever ago, well, then these statues were put up just yesterday. So kind of depends on how you look at it. Now, if we are left with a randomly scattered set of statues, maybe the better thing to do to remember our heritage would be to protect them by curating them into some sort of a museum and putting them all in the same place and being respectful toward the feelings of people who view those statues as a part of their legacy of their history, but also telling the whole story and telling the story reasonably well, not putting a statue on every corner to make sure that, uh, again, people who were the victims of those war, you know, heroes, for want of a better word, if you live in, if you live in a Confederate mindset, maybe we'd be do, doing a little bit better to create a much more meaningful Smithsonian-style memorial. Those are my ideas. How well do they stand up to the scrutiny? How accurate am I being? PBS.org had a NewsHour Updates article called Robert E. Lee Opposed Confederate Monuments. It was published August 15th of this year. 
written by Lisa Desjardins. The article starts like this. At the center of the Unite the Right rally that turned deadly in Charlottesville last weekend was a protest of the city's plan to remove a statue of Robert E. Lee. White supremacists, neo-Nazis, and others have made the monuments to the Confederate commanding general a flashpoint, at times marching to keep them standing. But Lee himself never wanted such monuments built. I think it wiser, the retired military leader wrote, about a proposed Gettysburg memorial in 1869, not to keep open the sores of war, but to follow the examples of those nations who endeavored to obliterate the marks of civil strife, to commit to oblivion the feelings engendered. Lee died in 1870, just five years after the Civil War ended, contributing to his rise as a romantic symbol of the lost cause for some white Southerners. But while he was alive, Lee stressed his belief that the country should move past the war. He swore allegiance to the Union and publicly decried Southern separatism, whether militant or symbolic. Later in the article, it says, Academics and writers vigorously debate his sentiments and his strengths, but historians seem to agree on Lee's views about memorials. He said he was not interested in any monuments to him or, as I recollect, the Confederacy, explained James Cobb, history professor emeritus at the University of Georgia, who has written about Lee's rise as an icon. I don't think that means he would have felt good about the people who fought for the Confederacy being completely forgotten, but he didn't want a cult of personality for the South. And that is perhaps what we are talking about. As for Stonewall Jackson, an article on Slate.com called The Monuments Must Go. This was also August of 2017, written by Jack Christian and Warren Christian. Was included a letter from, well, the descendants of Stonewall Jackson to the mayor of Richmond, Virginia, and the Monument Avenue Commission. We are native Richmonders and also the great-great-grandsons of Stonewall Jackson. As two of the closest living relatives uh, to Stonewall, we are writing today to ask for the removal of his statue, as well as the removal of all Confederate statues from Monument Avenue. They are overt symbols of racism and white supremacy, and the time is long overdue for them to depart from public display. Overnight, Baltimore has seen fit to take this action, Richmond should, too. Anyone who's interested in speaking about the legacy or the history or the importance of these crucial leaders at that period of time in the American South simply must reconcile why their points of view seem to be completely at odds with the very general that they claim to be wanting to remember and why they would deny the honor to the family of Stonewall Jackson and not respect their wishes. You see, the biggest question I think going on here, the reason why I think that we just sort of wink and nod to the question of, well, there's some history there, and what does that history mean, is this notion that, well, it's really not about race, it's not about racism, it's just about heritage, it's about state rights, it's about history, it's about legacy. Well, I want to share another article. HuffingtonPost.com the Confederate general who was erased, August 21st, 2017, with a subscript, There's a reason why you won't find many monuments in the South to one of Robert E. Lee's most able deputies. It seems that General William Mahone of Virginia, a right-hand man to General Lee, doesn't have a ton of statues coming up all over the American South to remember him. And one of the reasons was that he came out after the war as an opponent to white supremacy, played an instrumental role in trying to bring the South together across racial lines, including being part 
of a political movement called the Readjuster Party, an independent coalition of black and white Republicans and white Democrats that was named for its policy of downwardly readjusting Virginia's state debt. During this period, a readjuster governor occupied the state house. Two readjusters represented Virginia in the United States Senate, and readjusters represented six of Virginia's ten congressional districts. A man viewed as being uh, a representative of a black majority party didn't get any statues erected to him, and probably wouldn't draw any tears if what few statues there may be were among the ones that were taken down. Last but not least on this issue, the last link that I will share from Christopher Wilson, Smithsonian.com, September 12th, 2017. I'm not going to cover any of the material. I'll just call it out as the last link in the series of links that I want to share, because this article, I think, speaks pretty well about how we deal with the go-forward question facing us, even if we do accept a common-sense proposal like mine. The headline is, We legitimize the so-called confederacy with our vocabulary, and that's a problem. Tearing down monuments is only the beginning to understanding the false narrative of Jim Crow. To restate my point of view, to respect history by taking history so seriously that we call the bluff of those who claim they're obsessed by it. Any statue that was made after, say, Plessy versus Ferguson in the late 1890s should be gone. There was no reason for them to be erected. They play no role in history. They're as relevant as a Civil War statue in the middle of places like Wyoming would be to the question of remembering the Civil War in the United States. So those are gone. Robert E. Lee didn't want statues of himself made. Those should be gone, including any that include him or references to him, even on a nameplate, because he was not just opposed to his own image being used in that way. And, you know, forgive the sins of those who are using this man's image against his will centuries after his death. But he also wasn't a fan of any such displays. He was ready to reunite the nation. And here, I think that he would probably be very deeply grieved that the events that have happened here in the last, say, two or three months in the United States of America clearly show that his will has been thwarted by the very people who claim to speak on his behalf. And finally, anyone else who would be the spokesperson for the family of these types of Confederate icons who say themselves, hey, enough is enough. In the interest of my family name, I want the statues of my family member taken down. Those should be taken down too. I have not done the primary research. I do not view myself as an historian, maybe more of a commentator, and even that's probably generous. But I'm guessing that there might be 30 statues left or 40 statues left, certainly less than 100. And maybe less than 100 is plenty for what is essentially an act of treason against the United States that was thwarted at the cost of a significant amount of bloodshed, where even the man deemed the de facto leader of that insurrection recognized during his lifetime and said so directly, we shouldn't be putting up monuments to remember this. We should be uniting as a nation and moving past it. So, to circle back to where I started, to look at a meme one more time, are we blaming 100-year-old statues of men who died 150 years ago for our problems today? I don't think so. There aren't that many of them that are more than 100 years old, for starters. And the men who died 150 years ago, well, either they, directly, even at the time, or their descendants, 
have second thoughts about whether or not we should be appropriating their image in such a manner. If you don't respect your history enough to defer to the will of Robert E. Lee, then shame on you for suggesting we should be putting statues of him anywhere we possibly can, whether our intent is to intimidate a minority group in our population or not. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, can get erected, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors behind the backs of everyone else steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? At the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. I'll grant that it seems a little bit strange to be talking about a different drummer who is a singer, born in Scotland, raised in England, currently living in the United States, with this debate over the U.S. Civil War and statues, and racism, and violence in Charlottesville, Virginia. But it's not as far afield as you might think. When I was beginning to look at how do we want to talk about history, and remembering history, and even, in some cases, the negative notion that there might be, quote-unquote, some history there, Al Stewart came quickly to mind. I've had for a couple of years now a notion that around the 5th of September, his birthday, turning 72 earlier this year, that maybe it would be a good time, again, around his birthday, to talk about the impact that Al Stewart has had as a writer on world history. But the funny thing is, the more I thought about that, the more I realized that actually his impact on world history is not the thing I like most about Al Stewart. So I'm going to take a little time, name drop more than just a few songs, and talk about Al Stewart in some detail. And I wanted to get the history portion of the show queued up first, so I could use it primarily as a transition. But first, what does Wikipedia say about Alistair Ian Stewart? Known professionally as Al Stewart, he is a Scottish-born singer-songwriter and folk rock musician who rose to prominence as part of the British folk revival in the 1960s and 70s. He developed a unique style of combining folk rock songs with delicately woven tales of characters and events from history. He is best known for his 1976 single, Year of the Cat, the title song from the Platinum album of the same name. Though Year of the Cat and its 1978 Platinum follow-up, Time Passages, brought Stewart his biggest worldwide commercial successes, earlier albums, such as Past, Present, and Future from 1973, are often seen as better examples of his intimate brand of historical folk rock. I'll leave Wikipedia here for a second, just to kind of reiterate that he was born in Glasgow, grew up in the town of Winborn in the Dorset area of England, um, went to Wycliffe College in Gloucester. And so he's got sort of a, a very UK background, for want of a better word. But I wouldn't, um, wouldn't be the least bit annoyed if people were thinking of Stuart as somebody who was more of a worldwide commodity. And I think that he's earned that through his songwriting. All Media Guide, um, www.allmusic.com, has an artist biography written by Bruce Eater that I think goes into a little bit better um, detail in terms of the sheer range of what Stuart was able to accomplish. Remember, Al Stewart is performing in a period of time where he's essentially an echo of the folk era of Dylan. 
making his truly folk rock mark around the time that Dylan went electric. And then, staying true to his own unique style of music through the birth of heavy metal with bands like Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath without changing his style, through the disco era without changing his style, through the new wave and, and punk years without changing his style. And the argument that Eater makes in this article is that, believe it or not, Stewart's style is unbelievably recognizable. It's unique. Here's the article from that biography. Scottish singer-songwriter Al Stewart has been an amazingly prolific and successful musician across 50 years, working in a dizzying array of stylistic modes and musical genre. In other words, he's had a real career, and has done it without concerning himself too much about trends and the public taste. He's been influenced by several notables, to be sure, including his fellow Scott and slightly younger contemporary Donovan, as well as Ralph McTell, Bob Dylan, and John Lennon. But apart from a passing resemblance to Donovan vocally, he doesn't quite sound like anyone else, and has achieved great success across four decades with songs that are uniquely his and impossible to mistake. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland in 1945 and was swept up a decade later in the skiffle boom that took young Britons by storm. He decided to take up guitar after hearing Lonnie Donegan's music. By the early 1960s, his family was living in Bournemouth and he joined a local band, The Trappers, in 1963 and was already writing songs by that time. He was an admirer of the Beatles as their fame swept out of Liverpool and across the country and even managed once to get backstage to meet John Lennon and play a few notes for him at one of their Bournemouth performances. He studied guitar with Robert Fripp, no less, and later keyboards in a band called Dave Lacaz and the G-Men, who managed to open the Rolling Stones at the outset of the latter's career in 1963. A true milestone for Stewart took place when Dave Lacaz and the G-Men recorded one of his songs, When She Smiled, in early 1964. So, that's the pedigree in the background, what you'll find, at least my opinion is, diving into the music a little bit, is that Stewart's work can be divided, you know, broadly and maybe generously into four distinct categories. History, the reason I'm featuring you here in the different drummer of this particular Inappropriate Conversations episode. Film-like stories. Sounds a little cryptic, but I think it'll be clear to anyone who's familiar with Stewart's music. I'm going to call the next group Personal Emo, and that sounds like an insult, but it's actually a couple of my favorite songs are in this group. And finally, going furthest back toward the beginning of his career, folk rock storytelling. I'll give some examples of each, and then I'm going to dive into these categories with some song references. But believe it or not, I think as I go through the list, I'm going not further away from what I like about Stuart, but further and further closer to what I love most about Stuart. In other words, I'm not necessarily the history buff myself. I richly prefer his folk rock storytelling. And while I'm going to grant that he is no match for someone like Bob Dylan... I think that if I were to pick a particular piece of folk rock storytelling music to listen to, I probably wouldn't pick Dylan. I'd probably pick Al Stewart. But first, what am I talking about in these categories? Well, for history, I'm going to mention one that probably most people won't know because I'm going to spend more time on history than any other category. So I'll flesh this out a little bit better. But the one time I saw Al Stewart in concert was supporting a tour for an album that he released in the mid-1980s called Russians and Americans. And I would put the title track of that in the history category. Even though it was somewhat of a contemporary take on modern history, he was talking about even Reagan and Gorbachev at the time. But it was a current events take that definitely understood the history behind it. 
film-like story is the best example. In fact, it's not just the best example for Al Stewart. It's one of the best examples in the history of music, Year of the Cat. Even if you don't like Year of the Cat, and I can understand why someone might not, it is unmistakably a film-like storytelling of a song. Under personal emo, you'd have to go to his other hit, uh, Time Passages. So I think that would be an example of, of an introspective, sort of non-folk piece of adult contemporary rock. And then finally, folk rock storytelling, best example I'm aware of. I mentioned it, in fact, in Inappropriate Conversations 81, came out in February of 2012, Love Chronicles, an 18-minute epic of uh, coming-of-age story, if you will, a personal coming-of-age story, as a matter of fact, made famous perhaps because it was the first use of the F-word in a uh, in a major label, um, a major studio album release. So having established the categories, let's dive right in. And I think it would be unfair to suggest that the earliest albums were all 100% in this folk rock storytelling you know, bent. Because the first album that I can remember bringing to the house from Al Stewart was bought, I think, in a dollar bin, maybe a $2 bin. I know it was a two-record set of the early years. And essentially, it was a hits collection representing material from his first four albums. Those albums would be Bedsetter Images, Love Chronicles, which I mentioned earlier with its title track, Zero She Flies, and Orange. And in the mix there, with, again, a lot of sort of on-the-road Kerouac style of storytelling, did include a song called Manuscript. That was on the third album, Zero She Flies. It was part of that hits collection as well, and very much the first of the songs from him that I would ever hear that was more or less about history. The only reason I picked up the Time Passages album years later, because you wouldn't need to get an Al Stewart album to get the song Time Passages if you wanted it. In fact, Time Passages and Song on the Radio would probably be both available from Billboard hits collections of that particular year. But A Man for All Seasons is one of the ones that is on Time Passages. I've always had a soft spot for it, even though it may not get the history 100% right. I own three live albums by Al Stewart, and at no point did I ever make a decision that I was going to obtain all of the live albums he ever recorded. It just happened. The three are kind of different from each other, one being purely acoustic, one being with a band, and another here very recently I'll get to in a minute. From the Rhymes and Rooms album, Josephine Baker would be another example of a history recording uh, dealing with a specific celebrity. And, you know, to be honest with you, you're still looking back 40, 50 years when you're making that particular song. So history doesn't always have to be about well, wars and rumors of wars and things of that nature. It could be simply about, you know, a particular um, celebrity who made a mark. Although the last one I want to mention under the history section, a little bit more of a recent history, appears on two of those three live albums. Indian Summer, Rhymes and Rooms, which was the uh, acoustic one. Originally from Year of the Cat, I believe, it's a song called On the Border, dealing with, I believe, Basque separatism and uh, uh, civil war, or at least potential um, civil opposition in Spain. I'll come back to history at the end of this, because I want the Different Drummer segment to end with the topic of the inappropriate conversations that we had today. But tying in with that history somewhat are things that I might describe as um, film-like stories. So Indian Summer, the live album with Al Stewart, the oldest of the three live albums, the one that was with a full band, included a track called Running Man. And that's more or less a uh, a spy, a, not quite a James Bond type figure, but it begins with somebody getting a, a phone call in the safe room saying, get out, get out now. Running Man. Soho, needless to say, 
from past, present, and future, and I think I've also got it on a couple of these live albums, it is more telling the story of a place, but still kind of a, a film-like rendering, uh, setting a stage. Rumors of War from Russians and Americans probably was the single from that album when I saw him live in what had been previously a movie theater in the American Midwest, in the heart of the heart of the country, as you will. And then trying to fill out an example of uh, the fifth of the references to film-like stories, start off with the most no-brainer obvious in Year of the Cat. Maybe it's less obvious and even questionable to call out the news from Spain from his Orange album. But I've read a few critics looking at that album. It's my favorite of Al Stewart's albums. And talking about whether or not this is a transitional album that represents the end of his folk period or the beginning of his uh, of his new period, not a lot of history storytelling going on. But the news from Spain, even though it's a personal storytelling, in fact, an emo story about a, a guy whose girlfriend uh, walks out on him and uh, goes on vacation never comes back, it is still told in a very filmic way. It's a man who is rushing to the airport to go to the Spanish resort city to see if he can find his girlfriend before it's too late, all the while secretly fearing that it is already too late. So that um, sense of loss and longing is another undercurrent of the work of Stewart. And the next couple songs I want to mention aren't truly folk rock. They are rendered in, a, in either a rock or a pop or an adult contemporary style of music. But they also don't feel quite so filmic to me as maybe the news from Spain. I would draw a distinction between the news from Spain, which is all about place and location and uh, a chase, if you will, to Rocks in the Ocean from the album 24 Carats. I'm going to mention at least a dozen different Al Stewart albums during this period of time. I've got 69 songs by Al Stewart currently on my MP3 player. And 24 Carats, I think, probably of all those albums is the least regarded, but it has two of my favorite songs, but they're in this same genre of this sort of emotional, personal sort of uh, longing and loss. Rocks in the Ocean, told like a fable of a man who took his uh, love for granted and lost her. Optical Illusion, also from 24 Carats, somebody waking up in the middle of the night, again, dreaming and hoping that he's seeing her again. Uh, if It Doesn't Come Naturally, Leave It was probably the second most uh, well-known song from the Year of the Cat. Time Passages had those two, the title track and Song on the Radio. Year of the Cat also, in some ways, had those two, the title track and If It Doesn't Come Naturally, Leave It. And then finally, under this personal storytelling of longing and loss, Accident on Third Street. Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think that anybody who just casually listens to music would have any reason to know any of the three songs I've mentioned from Russians and Americans. Not the title track, not Rumors of War, and not Accident on Third Street. But I really enjoy Accident on Third Street because of the theological challenges that it poses. The preacher, at a, a woman who's been killed by a drunk driver, the preacher at the funeral, says it's God's to give and it's God's to take away. And the narrator in Al Stewart's song asks, but why he happened to pick Linda on Saturday night, no one could say. This is the kind of incisive lyrical quality that people who jumped on the Al Stewart bandwagon from the very beginning would be the most familiar with. Maybe my favorite song by Stewart is off the Orange album, Night of the Fourth of May. It was included in that early years collection all those years ago, and it tells a fascinating first-person story about a uh, swinging single swap scenario where the man wasn't mature enough to deal with the situation, 
And uh, it is heartbreakingly beautiful in the way that it is rendered. Another one of these almost six-minute-long, you-couldn't-play-this-on-the-radio-if-you-wanted kind of tracks. But again, as, as the article on all, allmusic.com conveyed, Al Stewart's never really been the kind of person to worry about that. Um, not that he was indifferent to the idea of producing a single, um, but even at the time that he finished recording Year of the Cat, he's been quoted as saying that he kind of knew Year of the Cat was going to be a single because if he can't get a single off this one, he never will be able to, but it's still another five-plus-minute song. Bedsitter Images was Stewart's very first song, and it has one of his most beautiful tracks on it, Samuel Oh How You've Changed. Not an easy title to remember, because there isn't anything directly about those words that appear in the body of the song. And it appears to be a song told from the perspective of a toy that has been replaced in the heart of a young child by other toys, which he then uses to jump forward in time and deal with other senses, again, longing and loss. This may be where Stewart's folk rock storytelling and his personal emo perspective kind of meet. The first verse is, Most of the better bread woolen toys have gone to bed, and the teddy bears are sleeping in the cupboard. And the wooden soldiers all, and the rubber bouncing ball, are listening to the tales of Mother Hubbard. But the fairy lights grow dark on the Christmas tree, as restlessly I stand here forgotten and alone. I've been too long on the floor. I can't stay here anymore. So, Jenny, won't you please take me home? Samuel, oh how you've changed, from Bed Center Images. Speaking of the theological perspective that occasionally creeps into Stewart's music, Gethsemane again from Zero She Flies, probably my lyrical favorite from that particular album. And I'll only end with a quick reference to one more, the latest of the folk rock storytelling songs I'll, I'll put out there, Modern Times, the title track of that release, which actually came out between Past, Present, and Future and Year of the Cat. Wikipedia has a lengthy quote from Al Stewart, taken from interviews on Toronto radio with Bob Reed and, and Blair Packham back in 2012. They asked him about his songwriting process, and Stewart said this, I don't like repetition. For example, there have been nine songs in the top ten, I think, called Hold On, including, I think, once when there were two Hold Ons simultaneously in the top ten. Okay, if you're really cynical and you've written a new song, you'll probably want to call it Hold On because it gives you an extra edge. But at the same time, it shows so little interest in originality that I can't actually listen to anything called Hold On at this point in my life. I mean, it just seems crazy. So if I have two little rules and guiding principles, they would be, A, don't use words that other people use. Very people would put the word, oh, I don't know, pterodactyl into a song. So that's fine. But no O's, no babies, no I miss you so, and no you done me wrong, no bads or sads. B, and the other thing is, write about subjects that no one else wants to write about. Basically, 90% of the songs seem to be either, baby I love you so, or baby you done me wrong. Now, when people look at songs, when I play anybody on this planet a song, they say, what's this? They will say, oh, that's reggae, or oh, that's heavy metal, or oh, that's country and western, or oh, that's opera. You know what I mean? But that's not what I asked. They're answering a question I didn't ask. What they're saying is, that's the music. What I'm saying is, what's the song? And the song is either, oh, I done you wrong, or oh, baby, I love you so. No matter what the style is. In other words, there's a huge difference between content and style. And if you work more towards content, why not make it content that is original? 
If it's already been written, why write it again? If it's already been said, why say it again? I mean, there are some remarkable quotes that I love, but I didn't say them. And you don't want to pass them off as your own work. Napoleon said, time spent in Renaissance is never wasted. And that actually has governed my life. You know what I mean? That's a quote you can live by, but it's not my quote. So if I say it, I always credit it to Napoleon. There's another way of saying any of the things you want to say without rehashing someone else's words. I think of songs as cinema, really. It's aural cinema. I want to show you a movie when I'm playing a song. That's essentially what I'm doing. And of course, the songs are geographical too. One of the ways I get inspired to write a song, and this will always produce a song that sounds like nothing else, I can't recommend this highly enough. To just open the World Atlas just at random, and whatever page I'm looking at, at least six songs immediately occur to me. So if you look pretty much at any of the songs, a lot of them are geographical, historical, and from a movie. Fair point. Examples of that come from the most recent Al Stewart album that I've bought. It's a live recording, another sort of live acoustic set called Uncorked. And I'm just going to name five of the more than a dozen tracks on there, which are of this historical perspective. Last Days of the Century slash Constantinople, Coldest Winter, Warren Harding, Palace of Versailles, and Old Admirals. In other words, Al Stewart's accurately describing his penchant for historical references. I suppose I could say that all along, Al Stewart's done an excellent job relating history. It's just maybe for the first three or four albums, he was relating a personal history, and relating that personal history so well that it still speaks to me all of these decades later. It took me a while. It took me actually getting to and through college to perhaps mature enough to have the same place in my heart for the songs which are more third person than first person from his catalog. But I think both of these concepts apply to the topic that we're talking about today. It is, after all, some personal connection to history that is leading all of these people to want all of these statues to be protected in some ways. I'm only suggesting that we take a better, more disciplined look at the word all and the word history. Yes, there's some history there. Some of that history is so negative that it ought to be taken down. Some of that history is so distant that it would be well-preserved by being sequestered to one degree or another. I don't think we lose our history by putting it in a museum. And I don't think that we have to put a statue of Timothy McVeigh in downtown Oklahoma City to make sure that we don't forget what happened in that particular act of U.S. terrorism. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. There are a number of ways that you can interact with inappropriate conversations. On Twitter, I'm IC underscore Greg. There's a Facebook page for inappropriate conversations and also one for the Walk the Earth podcasts. Both those podcasts share the RSS feed. You can find them at the website, inappropriateconversations.org. And in fact, inappropriateconversations.com will now redirect people to www.inappropriateconversations.org. Inappropriate Conversations can still be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Smart Radio. And I am still, although slowly, in the process of posting clips of the oldest shows to soundcloud.com. On SoundCloud, these uh, hints of the past can be found under IC underscore Greg. Thanks for listening.
show is a proud member of the pride 48 podcasting network check out other great podcasts at pride 48.com slash shows